Good afternoon, fam. Welcome to Pigeon Post. Uh, usually when I'm doing this, I am in the car, either driving to work or from work. That's kind of how this all started. But we are in the middle of a crisis, right? We're in the middle of self-quarantining and uh, social distancing and um, keeping ourselves safe from coronavirus. So um, <clears throat> this has still got that desperate element to it um, because I am, let's see, I'm wearing sweatpants with wool socks pulled up over the sweatpants and because uh, I'm in Colorado, right? And then I am wearing like a button down kind of long sleeve shirt, almost like a shirt I would wear to work. Uh, so uh, it's quite the sight, I think, uh, according to my wife anyway, and my, my daughter and my son, they thought I looked pretty funny today, but it allows you to do the video meeting, uh, conferencing type stuff that we're doing with work and you can still be in your sweatpants and your wool socks and be cozy. Um, so pigeon post is now going to be broadcast from my new office, which is, um, the most quiet room in the house, which happens to be the closet. And um, yeah, so I am broadcasting <laughs> from, I'm recording this uh, from the closet in our house. So you will probably still hear uh, some kid noises here and there. Um, I fully expect that to be part of this. But this is uh, still desperate um, because what I'm finding is that a lot of conversations that I try to have with people, uh, they end up kind of stalling out with this idea that, well, that's your interpretation of the Bible and everybody has their own interpretation. And um, yeah, what I'm wondering with that, and this is a real question, if you want to reply, you can send me an email to uh, pigeonpost2019 at gmail.com, pigeonpost2019 at gmail.com. So send me an email. I'll put that email address in the comments, but or the description rather. Um, but what I was saying is I'm finding a lot of people are basically coming to this conclusion that we can't really know what the Bible says. So um, there's a lot of people that will say that the Bible is true and that it is the standard and that we should go to it for truth and, and statements like that. Um, but I think people think that practically speaking, you could sort of make the Bible say whatever it is that you want to say, want it to say. And so I suspect that people trust their traditions um, more than they trust themselves. And there is something to be said for that because people that trust themselves more than they trust their traditions, uh, that's a problem too, right? So on the one side, you've got the classic um, Catholic slash Eastern Orthodox approach to scripture, which is that we're going to believe what, what our authorities are telling us about the Bible and not question that. And there's some health to that uh, type of approach to things, right? To, to believe something that an authority says. But then there's the other approach, which would be kind of the wild Protestant, you know, 
plethora of denominations over here, and I say wild just meaning diverse, right? Um, where people keep breaking off because they can't agree with their brother or sister in Christ about something. And it basically turns into, well, this is my interpretation. This is what I want to believe. And so you've got the people over here, the Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, that um, think they have it set in stone, right? Um, interestingly, they disagree with each other on some things, and they splintered apart before the Protestants even came along, right? Like at least 500 years before that, um, or close to 500. But... And then the Protestants are just infinitely splintering, or at least that's what the perception is from the other side. Now, I'm not making this podcast just for people who are Christian or identify with any one of those Christian traditions that I mentioned. I'm just saying that we all come at things with our traditions in place. We come at things with something that we're predisposed to believe or we want to believe a certain way. And we're not really inclined to want to change the way that we believe, generally speaking. Um, I think that's a bad thing, right? Um, I mean, you could say that it's a good thing, um, you know, because when certain things are questioned, it should just be like, well, that's never been questioned before in the history of Christianity for 2000 years, or even the history of of scripture, you know, that's never been questioned before. And now you're questioning that, that, that does raise a red flag, right? But what I want to do with this series that I guess, um, is starting here, and I don't know how long it'll last or anything like that, um, is just to approach the Bible, um, not necessarily with new eyes, like, oh, I've never seen this before, but try to approach the Bible the way that Christ wants us to approach the Bible. Now, immediately the question is, how does Michael know what Christ wants us to approach the Bible as, you know? And my, my thesis, the thing that I'm operating on is that the Bible is basically self-attesting or it, it, it interprets itself. And I don't mean that in some kind of weird mystical way. I mean that like, if you read the Bible, it tells you what to think about things um, enough to shape what you were supposed to believe correctly. And the things that the Bible doesn't fully flesh out are things that we don't know. And we should just say, we don't know that, or it could be this, or it could be that. And when we start hardening ourselves into a certain position that can't be proven, proven um, that's where we get a bunch of traditions that are not necessary and that splinter us off unnecessarily, right? But then we should harden ourselves into the things that can be proven from scripture because this is the truth that God has revealed to us. And so I'm making this podcast for really for anybody. I mean, even if you consider yourself an atheist or not in those traditional Christian um, groups, I think this is important because the Bible is the most important book that's ever been written. Now, maybe you want to disagree with that personally, but if you look at the extent to which it's influenced, let's just say influential instead of important then. The Bible is by far the most influential book that has ever been written. And that's not just an American thing. That's in the history of the world. The way that the Bible has been cared for and carried 
through different cultures and traditions and translations um, is a testament to the fact that it's, it's highly influential and highly important. So if you're even going to start thinking about God, unless you're just an atheist who's like, I, I don't believe that there is a God and there's never, you're never going to convince me to even start thinking about this, right? Um, which I would challenge with just the classic argument that if you look out at creation, you see that there is a maker, right? And that's part of what we're going to get into here. So I don't really want to try to flesh out that argument. I want to try to convince you from scripture of the story. So even if you're not convinced of uh, enough to become a Christian, if you're at least convinced enough that that what the Bible is saying is clear, for one thing, and that it actually leads to the conclusions that I'm going to try to present here. And once again, I'm trying to stick with scripture. So I'll just kind of tell you off off the top which scriptures I'm going to include in this, and I'll also put it in the description. But if you have a pen or something, if you're this this I don't normally do like Bible studies. This is more like a Bible study, um, more than anything I've ever done on Pigeon Post. Um, except for the time we went through John. That was kind of like a Bible study as well. So I'm going to start at the very beginning of the Bible. So you can literally open to the very first page, essentially, in the Bible, which is Genesis 1. And Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, Penta means five, right? Were written traditionally by Moses, okay? And they're often referred to as one book, the book of the law, or just the law. It's everything that Moses wrote. So you can imagine Moses sort of taking all of the resources that he had, all the knowledge that he had in Egypt um, as a very learned man, and everything that God revealed to him and sort of writing it all out and saying, this is the first big, huge stone or building block of who God is and what he's done in history. So Moses is kind of, I mean, there's people that believe that people before Moses wrote things down and Moses sort of inherited those writings and that's fine. Um, but Moses is definitely the guy who edited those things that he received. And then of course, um, did what God told him to and recorded that and said what God wanted him to say. Um, so, and once again, if you don't buy all that, that's okay. For now, um, remember that the Bible is self-attesting. So I'm, I'm banking on the Holy Spirit to do whatever work he needs to do in your heart. That's not, the pressure's not on me here. The pressure's only on me to faithfully represent the Bible. The pressure's not to change your mind. So I can't change your mind, uh, <laughs> even in today's uh, society with all the information that we have. It seems like people's mind is even more made up, you know, because we feel like we've seen it all. Um, so anyway, let's. I hope that's a decent intro. It, this is still a pigeon posty kind of thing because I'm doing a lot of homework for this um, series or these episodes, however many it turns into. Um, but it's also kind of messy. And I think we need to be okay with that, you know, like that there's always going to be more that you could do, but you just really need to start. 
Now, before I tell you which scriptures I'm using, uh, let me just say, I don't have a reference Bible on me. I think I have one on Kindle, but I've just been using this Bible that doesn't have the references. But if you have the references that are in the center column or the side column that tell you um, which Bible passages are being alluded to. So like when you read Genesis 1, if there's references beside it to other places in the Bible, it'd be really good. It would take a few hours, especially if you're not familiar with how to work around that, uh, around the Bible and the different books. But once you kind of learn how to get around it, you know, the order of the books and where everything is at, it's hugely valuable because you read those references and they show you what Moses is talking about and what Jesus thought about what Moses said. And when I say Jesus, I mean the entire Bible, really, but specifically in the Gospels and then in the uh, apostles, the people that Jesus taught and instructed to carry on the Gospel, you know, his, what he, who he is and what he has done. Okay. Um, so here are the Bible passages that I'm using. You could use many more. You'll find many more in the references. But here's the ones, here are the ones that I am using. And if I miss one, I'm sorry. I'll try to put it in the description. So uh, first of all, my main text is Genesis 1. The goal here is to start with Genesis 1 and kind of move through Scripture, uh, probably, probably going through all of Genesis, or at least kind of taking those chunks. Now, um, the supporting passages that I'll be reading from, which I will read these in their entirety uh, during this podcast, so this will probably be kind of long. I might even have to pause it for a break. But um, John 1, 1 through 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Uh, this one's kind of tricky. Isaiah 43, 10 through 13, comma, 44, 6 through 8, comma, 45, 5 through 7, comma, and 45, 22 through 23. Um, also, 1 Peter 1, 20, Revelation 13, 8, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Um, these are all out of order, but, you know, they'll appear uh, whenever I get to them. Um, Exodus 14, 19 through 15, 18. Uh, Matthew 6, 25 through 33, Proverbs 8, 12 through 31, and Psalm 145. And I think that covers it. I don't know if I'll read these, but also supporting passages, Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Okay. And once again, all of these passages that I just mentioned. First of all, I tried to pick things from throughout the Bible. So I picked something else that Moses wrote. I picked something from wisdom literature in the Psalms. I picked something from the prophets. I picked something from uh, the Gospels and from Peter and from Paul and from Revelation. So I'm really trying to give you something from all of the Bible explaining Genesis 1. Now, that's not always possible with every single Bible passage to pick other related things throughout the entire Bible, but most of the time you can do it. Um, I'll try to show you in this that I'm not being arbitrary, okay? Um, and I'm picking things that really do relate to Genesis 
one that really truly relates to Genesis one. Okay, so um, I'm gonna go ahead and kind of pause it right here and let you read Genesis one. So uh, I'm not gonna read the entire chapter of Genesis one. I, I would like, I think everyone reads at their own pace and I think it'd be great if you're interested in doing this to just pause it right here, um, read Genesis one, make notes, underline things, look for things that you see first, and maybe even just take a day to study that and to look at those references and see what you come up with. And the questions that I'm going to basically be asking is, how does this relate to the rest of the Bible, uh, specifically who Jesus is and what God has done through Jesus in order to save his people? Um, we're also, especially in Genesis, going to be looking at what is, how does, what are the implications for our worldview? And so I'll try to do some application to different things that we run into. So this is kind of a wide open Bible study. I encourage you to pause it, study Genesis 1, then come back. Maybe I'll see something that you didn't see. Maybe you'll see something I didn't see and you can email me. Um, and that would be awesome. I would love for this to be a conversation um, during this crisis time, I think we have a really good opportunity um, to dig into what God has said and see and really make those beliefs our own instead of just traditions. Because I know I talk about Catholics and Orthodox a lot, but Protestants are just as bad at having their traditions that we don't even know why we believe. Um, one of the underlying reasons that I do everything that I do is so that that information and my heart will be recorded for my kids. And I want my kids to know that God is real and that there are real reasons for believing scripture and um, that it's beautiful and it's the word of God and it shows us who God really is. So I firmly believe that. Um, thank you for listening. And once again, I'll go ahead and um, take a quick break right now. A good time for you to pause it, open your Bible to Genesis 1, do some study, come back, and maybe we can look at that together. So thanks. Okay, welcome back to Pigeon Post. Um, we're going through Genesis 1, so hopefully you just read it. Um, if not, I just want to remind you that there are good apps out there that will read it to you if you're driving or something like that. So uh, Bible Gateway is one of those. Um, you can choose the version that you want to hear, and it will read it to you. And I found that very helpful. Um, some of us are auditory learners, so it's very helpful. Okay, so... <clears throat> Here's the deal. The Bible starts with Genesis chapter 1. And when we read it, it's pretty clear and plain, right? Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. It's just an amazing, amazing beginning, right? Um, it tells you a lot about God in those verses. Um, and then it goes into the days of creation. Here's what happened on the first day. 
the second day, the third day, the fourth day. And we can see that God is creating things. He's telling these things to reproduce according to their kind. Um, and he's filling the earth. And after everything that he made, it says that he saw that it was good. Um, I think it happens at least once every day. And then you can see that the most information is on the sixth day, uh, when God continued to bring forth animals and then also brought forth man um, and gives man dominion over all the animals and the earth. Um, he tells man what, what we can eat, right? And I'm using man in the general sense because he made man, male, and female. And um, it says at the very end of the chapter, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. So there was nothing new added to creation um, after that point. Uh, in those six days, uh, we're given this picture of how God did it. And um, without getting into, uh, you know, different theories of creation and evolution and all that stuff, I just, let's just read the narrative and just let it say what it says. And so that's what it says. It says that God created in six days. Now, I want to point out, and hopefully this will be kind of a hook to how this Bible study might be a little bit different. Um, let's look at a contextual reading. And when I say that a contextual reading or a contextual interpretation, instead of just taking Genesis 1 and trying to uh, figure out well, how long was a day and does this jive with evolution and all that stuff, I want you to uh, put yourself in the shoes of the context. So and when I say context, I mean that Moses wrote this for Israelites who just got out of slavery and they're in the desert. Think about that. Moses never made it into the promised land. He wrote this stuff while they were in the desert uh, shortly out of Egypt, this generation or this next upcoming generation that Moses is leading out will, will be the first who weren't slaves in Egypt. And Genesis will kind of tell you how they became slaves, right? So he's going to tell them their history, right? He's going to tell slaves who they are. These are people that have basically grown up knowing themselves to be oppressed slaves and think about their situation they are out there in the desert sleeping in tents they don't have a home yet they're sojourners they're laying their head on the dust of the earth looking up at the stars every night and Moses starts the story the true story but he lays it out as sort of this, like, here's what you see around you in creation. Here's what you see happening. This is the order that God set into motion. This is what he 
decided things were going to be like and created everything out of nothing. He did this. Now, these are people that have seen God do miraculous things in Egypt. They had just seen God part the waters of the Red Sea so that they could walk across on dry land, right? So just in case you're not seeing it yet, let's just kind of like go through the days of creation. And I don't know if I'll be able to point something out for every day uh, that relates to the Israelites in the desert, but let's just see what we see. God said, let there be light. He separated the light from the darkness. Okay. Well, these people are seeing God go with them as a cloud by day and fire by night. So God is providing shade in the daytime and light and heat and protection um, at night as this cloud by day and this fire by night. This is the God who brings light into darkness. He creates light to scatter darkness. I imagine there's things to be afraid of when a whole nation is spending time in the dark, out there without a city with walls and such. This is the God who put all this who, who created the light. It's the same God who is there as a pillar of fire by night protecting the people. Um, in, in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, it says that God separated the waters from the waters, right? And then in verse 9, that he made dry land appear. It has to be an allusion to, or not, an allusion might not be the right word, but it has to remind the Israelites that God separated the waters on the Red Sea for them to walk across onto dry land. So we need to read the Bible, uh, R.C. Sproul says, existentially, which means put yourself into the story, not as if like you're the hero in every story, but that you're experiencing what these people experience. And you might think, well, there's no people <laughs> there when God says, let there be light. But in the contextual reading, this was written to the audience of the Israelites who were in the desert. Put yourself in their shoes. You're sleeping in the desert. And uh, what does it say that God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and days and years. And he made the stars. And you're looking at the stars. You're you're laying there on the dust that you were made from. We haven't gotten that part yet, but the dust that that you know constitutes this earth that God brought out of nothing and created things and animals, and then you're looking up at the stars that he made. This is the God that is going with you into the desert and into the promised land. This is the God who has delivered you out of slavery and oppression and people killing your kids, uh, which you'll see in Exodus is what was happening. This is that God who made everything. So this isn't a local deity. We see immediately this is not one of these myths out of the Middle East or wherever um, about a local deity with a local people. God immediately is saying, look, this is a universal story um, that you come from the beginning of everything. And I'm going to show you 
how you got to where you are. Now, isn't that a story that we all need? It's a worldview and it's a personal identity that we all need to understand who we are in may, as people made in the image of God and what those implications are. But before we even talk about implications, like just let that sink in that God made you. And this is how God made you. And if you were one of these Israelites, then God delivered you from slavery. And you see how big this God is, the God that made the stars. He's not a local deity with limited powers. He knew what he was making. He foreknew before it even happened and planned to save you from slavery. So we're immediately seeing that God is big, universal, not a local deity among many, but one God. And that he has a plan for a certain people. He has a plan of redemption to save people. And that's what's going to start unfolding. Right? So I want to read, um, this is probably going to be a long podcast. <laughs> I've done some long podcasts before, but this might be something. Um, so Exodus fourteen nineteen. If you want to turn there, Exodus 14, 19 through 15, 18. I just want you to see what might have been bouncing around in the Israelites' heads as they were listening to Moses tell them where they came from, right? So Exodus 14, 19, and this is just kind of a snippet of the story um, of Exodus. Uh, when God took the people of Israel out of Egypt. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground 
through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel from the day, or excuse me, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Ephesians. And Israel saw the Ephesians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. <clears throat> now, I've been saying the Lord that way, um, just to underline the fact that when you, whenever you see uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the sacred name of God. And the word the really isn't there. So when we say the Lord, we're talking about uh, Yahweh, or it's the name of God. It's, it's God's name. Um, I point that out because not, there's no problem with the translators putting the Lord instead of Yahweh. That's a big um, issue that really doesn't matter, honestly. Um, what matters is that when we see it, we know that it's the sacred holy name of God and that we treat it that way. Um, but I point it out just because I think sometimes, and I'm not necessarily going to read it with that emphasis every time, but sometimes when we see the Lord, we just, we, we use the Lord for, oh, thank the Lord, you know, you know, oh Lord, you know, we almost take God's name in vain, um, the way that we use that word. So I, I'm pointing it out just to let you know that this isn't talking about just a general, um, like your person on the street might say, praise the Lord, but they don't mean the God of the Bible. This is talking about the God of the Bible. His name is Yahweh. He is the Lord. Um, so when you see those all caps, just know that that's God's name. Um, you don't have to read it with a holy sounding voice, you know, <laughs> or anything like that. But I wanted to emphasize that um, just as I read that passage. Um, so on into 15, I wanted to read up to 15, 18. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the, the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic, excuse me, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 
You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. These are, uh, side note here, these are people that are hearing about what God did when he took Israel out of Egypt. And they're trembling. Terror and dread fall fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as, uh, excuse me, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, where you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So, this is the thing that happened and the praise that erupted from the people. So at the end of of chapter 14, this is what God did. This is the praise that erupted. You can see how they are interpreting themselves as the people of God, rightly so, and how that plays into things that you see in Genesis, even later on in Genesis. Think about this, that, that God destroyed the wicked with a flood, the flood of Noah. And here God destroyed the wicked in the Red Sea without even having a boat. He took his people across on dry land. So um, just a couple of things that I think play into that existential or contextual reading. The, the audience, the Israelites in the desert, they saw a cloud by day and fire by night. They saw the waters of the Red Sea part before their eyes, the stars under the wilderness sky, knowing that God spoke them into existence. Another cool side note there, and you could probably do this all day, but you notice that in verse 20 of Genesis 1, that the waters were swarming, uses that word swarming with living creatures. And think about the swarms that God brought into Egypt as a curse to the Egyptians to free the Israelites. All of that foreshadowing is there, but it's not just poetic device. It's things that identify Yahweh as the God who made heavens and earth and who redeemed his people out of slavery to worship him. You notice their immediate response is worship. This should be our response as well. Okay. Um, Let's see here. I'm operating from my notes, which I'm trying to, I think I have them in order, but so when we look at like a literal reading, um, literal reading just means to read the Bible the way it was written um, or like you would read any other book. Um, so don't take too many liberties with it. Um, it's pretty clear that God created out of nothing, that he spoke things into existence, that he made things reproduce according to their kind, and that all of those things were good and pleasing to him. So God is seeing what he is making and he is declaring it good and pleasing to himself. So these are things that 
he is taking delight in, right? But he's also taking delight in bringing provision to his creation. So everything that God made still needs God to continue living. Um, so creation is also provisional. So we, we don't have a deistic view of God. God didn't create the world like winding up a clock and just letting it run out or putting the batteries in and just seeing what happens um, or running a program with all of these random variables. God is doing something with a plan, with an order, and he is also sustaining that creation and providing for it. Um, so Matthew 6 And you have time to turn because I'm going to be flipping pages. So if you haven't gotten out your Bible yet, that's what this is designed for. Um, so Matthew 6, 25 through 33 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, even in creation, there is God's provision for his people and the responsibility of the people not to worry about their own provision, but to seek first God. This podcast is subtitled Knowing God, or Notes on Knowing God. I want you to know God. I want to know God. I want my kids to know God. That's why the Bible was written, so that we would know God. And... Knowing God is such a priority that God says, don't worry so much about these things that I'm going to provide for you, but worry about knowing me. It's much more important. Um, and also, also in the literal reading, we already mentioned this, God made everything in six days and it was very good. Um, so I, there's a sense in which I don't want to get to like this represents this or that. But I want you to think about light and how the focus is on light here. Um, we're going to talk about that more, how it relates to Jesus. But just the idea that it's something in our hearts, even when we see a sunrise, there's just this kind of praise that happens. Um, this kind of expectation of being able to see things and being able to work in the light. And we recognize that the light is a good thing. We spend our time sleeping in the dark. And God is at work in the dark as well. But light is a very good thing, right? So um, 
there is this, um, even though we're not told in, in Genesis 1 that somebody praised God, we'll read next, uh, in the next chapter, I'll read some of Psalm 19 where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But I want to read to you from um, Psalm 145. Just more of this praise um, that surely the people of Israel, you saw how they praised when God delivered them from Pharaoh, that they had a book of Psalms eventually. Most of them were written with David, but even Moses wrote Psalms. They wrote songs as a response to how awesome God was. Here's Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Um, pause right there. We are supposed to see God's works in creation in Genesis 1 and in the world around us. And meditation for a Christian is not emptying oneself and coming to some silent um, nothingness. Um, meditation is rather filling your mind with what God has done and who he is and praising him for it and really seriously letting it sink in. So one reason why this podcast is so long um, is because it's not just a Bible to a study. We're meditating on it. We're trying to think like, what does this mean, you know, to know God in this way, to really know the God of the Bible instead of just saying, oh, I read Genesis 1. Let me check that off my, my daily reading. Um, so back to Psalm 145, verse 6. They shall speak of your might, the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season." This is really key in creation right here, this verse, verse 16. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So think about that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God's going to fulfill the desire of those who seek him. And the picture of that is how he fulfills the desire 
of everything that he's created. So he gives the animals food. He gives us food and clothing. He clothes the grass of the field. He takes care of his creation. And when we see the goodness of God in creation, that's just a small sliver of how good God is in redemption and how that we need to humbly submit ourselves to the one true God. We need to seek him first and his righteousness. And those secondary things um, will just be a, a shadow of what the real redemption and provision is in Christ, uh, which we'll get to in a second. Um, and then finishing up verse 20 and 21, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Uh-oh, <laughs> this is the first time that we've seen uh, something like that. And this is immediately where some people tap out on their idea of God that, oh, we love to hear about how God, how good God is um, in creation and with those who call upon his name. But then we don't want to accept the fact that the Bible teaches that God will destroy the wicked. He will destroy the wicked. That's not the whole story, but it is part of it. Uh, verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. There's a sense in which all creation glorifies God. Now, on the, on the idea of creation being a good thing, um, let's look at Proverbs 8, 12 through 31. So this is uh, wisdom literature, and what's cool about Proverbs is it actually personifies wisdom. So um, you're hearing uh, wisdom's side of the story as if wisdom is a person, right? Um, but look how wise the Lord is as you're listening to this, how wise he is in, um, in how he has ordered things and set things up. Verse 12, Proverbs 8, 12. Um, yeah. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the ways of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, so it's talking about creation. The first of his acts of old, ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the, hill, the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, 
when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. This is a personification of wisdom. Um, God made the world in wisdom. When we look out and you see like how it works, you start studying science and how uh, animals get their food and adapt to their environment and how the Lord provides for everything, you can't help but say that this is the wisdom of God. This isn't something that came from nothing in chaos. This is something that comes from the mind of God. He is the designer and creator of all things, and he's infinitely wise, and he deserves praise, and he deserves the recognition that his wisdom is far above ours, even in creation, and much more in other things we're going to talk about. So that light, uh, I think, uh, is actual light in Genesis 1, but I think it also um, reminds us that God is is worthy of praise and that his wisdom is so far above ours. We're in darkness, but he is the light and we're just borrowing from his light to know anything um, or to see anything that's good. Um, the darkness, I think, is a foreshadowing of what's to come um, in Genesis, the first couple chapters, as sin is going to enter the world. And it's, remember that darkness is an absence of light. So it's absent of praise and wisdom. So in one of those passages, it was mentioned that pride um, was, was antithetical to God, uh, like, like our pride in ourselves, right? Um, so it, there's going to be um, themes of like what happens in the light and what happens in the darkness. And obviously sin is part of the darkness, the curse, those things are going to kind of come forth, right? But light scatters the darkness. And this is a biblical theme uh, throughout scripture of light and darkness. Uh, but it's not dualistic. Um, it's not like Star Wars. And I'm, I'm not knocking Star Wars, but the worldview in Star Wars is very different from the worldview in scripture. It's not a dark side of the force, light side of the force. And they're basically equal and they're struggling and it's a dualistic thing. Um, light is the absence of good light. I mean, I mean, excuse me, darkness is, yeah, I said that wrong. <laughs> darkness is the absence of the light and sin is, um, it's an affront to God. It is offensive, right? But it's more than that. It's the first thing that makes sin bad is the fact that it's absent of the good. It's absent of the light. And, um, it is, darkness is powerless to the light. The light scatters the darkness. So um, there's only one God, and he is a God, um, you know, who, when Jesus came in, said that he was the light of the world. Um, so there's not a dualistic thing going on, uh, this epic battle between good and evil. Um, good is better. <laughs> it's, it's okay to say that, that good is better than bad. And that God shows us his heart here. That remember, this is about, there may be things that I'm saying or the scripture is saying that you disagree with. 
that's fine. Disagree with it. But let's faithful, faithfully represent the God of the Bible. Let's not say, well, this is what I think, and Scripture's wrong, and this is really different. Let's just look at what it says, and we can see that God is a God of light. In him there's no darkness. Okay? Scripture affirms that. Uh, God sets things in order. He's not a God of chaos. Um, God uh, has purposes for things. He brings life. He sustains life. He's not a God who uh, created things to die, necessarily. Um, and we'll see how that curse goes into all that thing. Um, but, but yeah, look at what it says about God. He created things to be good and pleasing to him. That was the purpose of um, creation. Okay, um, so on that note, Genesis 1 begins to tell us who God is and what he is like. So, and that unfolds throughout scripture. So you're not going to find a detailed list of God's attributes in Genesis 1. What you're going to find is, hey, this is what God did. This is what he's like. And, and the Bible is going to keep telling you that and really pounding it in and affirming it in certain places so that we know. Um, so let's go to a New Testament gospel. And I want you to see how similar this is to Genesis 1. This is the book of John, John chapter 1. In the beginning, oh, same words, right? Um, I really like the Greek there because it sounds cool. It says NRK, and I don't know Greek, but I was thinking of naming this episode NRK uh, because it's the same phrase. Um, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it's the same phrase as in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was Genesis, right? Here, this says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, so the word is him. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, what do you think it's going to say? Death? No. In him was life, and that life was the, what do you think it's going to say? Darkness? No. Light of men. So when you read John, it, John is calling Jesus the word. Jesus is the one through whom God created all things. In Jesus was life. In Jesus, uh, that life was the light of men. And verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John is very clearly trying to tell us that Jesus was there at the beginning and that he was God. And I mentioned in this uh, uh, social media vi uh, video that I did that one of the things I've struggled with in the past, you know, I think that every tradition that we have needs to, it's only as good as we're convinced of it from scripture. So any traditional Christian belief should be reaffirmed by looking at what scripture says about it. Not because it's in the creed, not because our church says so, but because the only way to really believe it in your heart well and be convinced of it is to be convinced that God said it, not that it's a tradition of man. And God here in John is affirming that 
Jesus, before he became a man, was with God in some sense. He was the Word or the Son of God. So, and I've read other scriptures that call God Father. So now, and then in Genesis, it identifies the Spirit. So you see very clearly that God, whatever he is, is not a man. He's separate and distinct from creation. But he is a person. He is a personal being. So we don't have an impersonal force in the universe, but we have a person who is God. And that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such that he is three distinct persons, but one God or one essence. And so I am convinced that the scripture teaches the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in all of its creedal definition, I'm, I'm all in on the definition of the Trinity. Um, but I think that you have to find that in scripture and make sure that this is really the truth and be convinced that this is what we're supposed to believe. And remember that Jesus has, is the light, so he sheds light on all of scripture, which is why we're trying to make sure we go to a lot of different passages to pour more light on Genesis 1. So we see that in the beginning, Jesus was there through Jesus. And I'm using Jesus, not, not the incarnation, right? Because the son became Jesus of Nazareth when he took on flesh. Okay. Uh, but the son or the word, I should say more properly, is there in Genesis 1. And through that word, you notice God spoke all things into existence. Through his word, he created all things. And that word is a person. And so that's where we get um, the doctrine, or at least some of the doctrine of the Trinity there. Um, lots more we could say. Okay. Um, but I want to, I think this series of scriptures that I want to read from Isaiah is super important. Um a lot of people want to believe that God um, just kind of goes by any name in whatever religion. Um, so that if you were to go to Islam, that Allah would also be God uh, just by a different name. Um, but that's not what scripture even remotely teaches. Remember that we're worshiping the Lord, his proper name, Yahweh, or however you say it. We're not entirely sure how you say it because Israelites thought it was so holy that they didn't want to say it. Um, so, <laughs> but Yahweh or Jehovah or any of those names um, are just fine. The Lord, as long as we're recognizing it, that that's the biblical sacred name of God, is not, excuse me, is not Allah. The Lord is not Allah. Um pretty easy to, to kind of prove this is that um, not to get hung up on you know, well, what is the technical name for the Lord and what is the technical meaning of Allah, but to show that the God of that scripture is not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's not even Father, right? But that the God of the Bible is, identifies himself as Father and Son and Spirit. Um, so this God is also not the God of Mormonism because the God of Mormonism is a man, a glorified man who had a God before him 
and a God before him. And there's an infinite regression of gods who are literally procreating spirit beings. And so with a friend uh, or a coworker one time, I had this conversation because um, he was a Mormon. And I said, you know what? I don't want to worship the Mormon God because he's not God. I want the God that started everything. Who is that God? And I don't believe a Mormon can even tell you because it's an infinite regression. And they're just one day they can basically be God. So this is why the Bible and especially Genesis 1 is so important because it shows us that there's one God and that we are not him. We are distinct from him. It shows us that this God is personal, not an impersonal force. So when you go to the Bible, it immediately starts cutting out all of these other beliefs. And I don't say this to hate on other religions, but I just say that I want you to know God. I want you to know the truth. I want the truth. I don't want to mess around with idols. I don't. I don't want to mess around with idols. And when you look at a religion that teaches that God is an impersonal force and even participating in, um, in things that sort of come from that belief, you know, like meditation and Eastern practices and stuff like that. God is not an impersonal force. God is a person. And this is what Genesis teaches us, that he's a person, that he's worked specifically with Israel, and that it leads to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Um, so Christianity is not an open religion. I'm sorry. Some Christians may consider themselves open, but Christianity is an exclusive religion. It's either all right or it's not. It, it doesn't allow for that. And let me try to prove you that through prove that to you through Isaiah. Now, side note, I don't think I need to defend every um, book of the Bible, but if you're highly skeptical of Scripture and you're like, well, this has all been changed, blah, blah, blah. Um, Isaiah is one of the most legit, like the Dead Sea Scrolls have like, I think, I don't know, most of Isaiah there, like unchanged, right? Um, this word has been preserved. It has not changed at all. Um, so this is what you're hearing, the same thing that the original audience heard. So Isaiah chapter 43, um, so I'm going to read different chunks of this. I could read the whole thing, but this podcast would be, you know, two or three hours. And I'm trying to, I'm probably already over an hour, pretty sure. Yeah. Um, so here we go. Isaiah 43, 10 through 13. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I'll just say Yahweh, um, just so you know, we're talking about the name of God. Um, he says, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my spirit whom I have chosen or excuse me, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, get this, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So we know that Jesus is not a separate God because God says here that there weren't was no other God before him and none after him. Jesus is not a separate God with a little g like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Um, I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. And henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. 
I work and who can turn it back? God is saying, look, I'm the only God. I don't know how many ways there are to say it, right? But um, hold on, I need a drink of coffee here. He's being as clear as he can possibly be. Um, chapter 44 in Isaiah 6 through 8. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. Hmm, that's interesting. So we have Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. So we're seeing things, and you'll see it also in Genesis, where there's um, this hint that God is not a monad, but a trinity. Um, anyway, he says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God is definitely not saying, Yahweh is not saying, I can be found in all other religions. No. He's saying there are no other ones, no strange gods, none before, none after. You are my people. He's talking about Israel, not you, not me. <laughs> you are my people. He's identifying himself as the God of Scripture and of no other Scripture. Um, I'm sure some of you are turning this off right now because that's what our age cannot stand is for someone to say that there's only one right way. But there is only one God. And I'm sure the time will come when we will lose jobs and possibly life by saying that. And I hope that God convinces me and my house and you and your house enough to stand for that truth, that there is one God. And it doesn't mean that we hate anyone else. We actually love them and want them to come to the truth. And we don't want to hurt anyone. Or this doesn't become a militant thing. This is just a thing of, we want you to know God. My daughter's really loud. You can probably hear here in the recording. Um, she sounds happy though, so that's good. All right, so Isaiah 45, uh, five through seven. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. We're not going to get into that now, but you see how powerful God is asserting himself to be. That he's not just a God who doesn't punish wickedness, but he is a God who also creates calamity in some sense. Same chapter, Isaiah 45, 22 through 23. Now listen, you might think that all of what I've said the last five or ten minutes has been like, you might be taking this as hateful or something like, the, like that. But look at what this says. Turn to me and be saved, 
all the ends of the earth. Yahweh is saying, my invitation of salvation is for everyone in the entire world, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Why should we come to God? Why should we come to Yahweh, the God of the Bible? Because he's the only one. He's the only real God. All the ends of the earth need to hear this message. He says, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And I'll read the first part of the next verse. Only in the Lord, only in Yahweh, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So he says, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. Salvation is only found in the name of the Lord. There's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus. Um, I would encourage you to read Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, 15 through 17. I'm not going to read those here, but they go into more of how Jesus is Lord, even over creation and at that time, and that Jesus is not um, simply somebody who showed up in the Middle East one day, uh, but he is pre-existent, the pre-existence of Christ is what we say in theological terms, that, that um, he didn't grow into being God. Um, Jesus of Nazareth didn't, wasn't just a great moral teacher or anything like that. Um, but he was God who became a man. So he was God before he was man. And that's what we believe in the incarnation um, that the Bible teaches. Okay. Um, all this is flowing from Genesis 1 and trying to see, like, how much truth can we pack into Genesis 1? There's a lot of things that we've said so far, that there's one God that he created orderly, that there was none before him and none after him, um, that that Jesus is there and the Holy Spirit is there as well. And remember, I'm using Jesus um, in the, the pre-existence of Christ, okay, before he was born um, as a man, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, look, this also kind of foreshadows or shows us what God is going to do. Because there's this truth that God creates the way that he saves. Now, let me try to prove this to you in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. In that whole section of 2 Corinthians, I believe it starts in chapter 3. This is very relevant. I'm not just picking a verse out and trying to make it fit. Because Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is talking about the books of Moses. And how um, that... that Israelites didn't even see the glory of Christ there the way they were supposed to, and that that has to happen through the Holy Spirit. Um, but I just want to read you this one verse uh, just to make a point. So um, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in the same way that God just made light appear out of darkness. God will shine a light in our hearts 
to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're listening to this and you think, I'll never believe that. I will never believe what this guy is saying. That's fine. What I said at the beginning was I'm not here to convince you. But what I am here to do is to try to share with you the good news of the gospel because that is the way that God uses to shine into your heart the truth that the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, once again, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, you might just want to read some of that because very applicable to the books of Moses, very applicable to creation. But I just wanted to point out that the, the New Testament authors go to the Old Testament and apply it to what's happening with Jesus. That's one of the main points I want to make, so I want to be clear about that. The New Testament authors can say, in Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, that's the way that God shines light and saves people by shining that into their heart. So the New Testament authors are perfectly comfortable with taking the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus. And this isn't a full study on how to do that, but I'm being very cautious. I'm not saying anything crazy here. I'm being very cautious about what, how we take things and apply them to Christ. I'm trying to show you how the Bible does it, not so that you can find a hundred new ways to do it, but so that you can read Genesis 1 and see this is about Jesus. Jesus was the word at creation that was creating things. Jesus was showing us how he puts light into darkness to show us that we are in the darkness and that we need his light. So we see the gospel in this um, shadowy form, I guess you could say, this foreshadowing in Genesis of what God's going to do even better than creation. The new creation is better than creation. Hard to believe, right? That, that humanity can fall into sin and God can redeem people and remake it in such a way that it's better than the original, which was before sin. That's one of the mysteries of redemption, that God chose to create a world that he was going to have to redeem. Some people think this is controversial. I don't think it's controversial at all. God knew <laughs> the world that he was creating. It's not a surprise to him that it fell into sin, and he created it knowing full well that he would redeem it. And this was part of the plan of creation from the beginning. Um, so God knows what's going to, he's not like us. If we're just reading Genesis 1 for the first time, we're like, oh, what's going to happen in Genesis 3? Something great, right? No, God is like, I know what's going to happen in Genesis 3 because I've already ordained this story. I know what's going to happen. And I've already ordained how I'm going to work through this story to redeem a people to save and that that salvation is worth it. And it will glorify me when people see how much the new creation is better than the old creation. Oh man, I keep thinking of things to say and this is getting so long, but I'm sorry, I have to say it. Um, <laughs> this is, I think, another way that we can kind of say that Jesus is better than Adam. I think that a lot of religions and versions of Christianity basically set up Jesus as being equal to Adam, or Jesus gives you the opportunity to become Adam again. And this would be salvation by works. So any salvation system 
in which you have to work your way into God's good graces, so to speak, or you have to earn your way through obedience is basically saying something like this. Jesus came, he died for your sins, but he didn't really do anything else. He gave you the opportunity to go back to the garden and to be Adam, to obey enough so that you can be righteous and then you can be with God the way Adam was with God. That is not the gospel. And that is why I'm so adamant about being a faith alone or a Reformation type Christian because that denigrates the glory of Christ. Christ didn't come to put you back in the garden or to put me back in the garden. Let me personalize it. Christ didn't come to put me back in the garden to try to do what Adam didn't do. Why? Because I would fail. I would fail the way that Adam failed. And I'm get, we're getting ahead of ourselves in Genesis 3, but just keep that in mind that the new creation is better than the old creation because Christ, God himself, is, becomes the new Adam so that God can be the just and the justifier of the person who has faith in Jesus. Man, I hope you get that. If you want to talk about that, please, let's talk about that. <laughs> that is my reason for living right there. Um, so, a couple of things, we're getting close to closing up here. Um, a couple of things about this idea, which I think is really important, that God created a world that he knew he was going to redeem, that that was part of the plan, and that magnifies his glory. I would, I think the whole point of that doctrine, or the point of saying that, is that it gives him more glory. So let me try to prove that just with a couple scriptures here. Revelation 13.8 says, now there's a way that the words get flipped around in different translations, and I just want to make a note of that, just in case you're reading a long different translation. Um, I'll read it in ESV, and then I'll show you how uh, just because a phrase is moved, it doesn't change the, the meaning of it. Okay. Um, remember that these scholars are doing the best that they can. Their job is to not really, excuse me, pay attention to, you know, the different beliefs of different denominations. Their job is just to try to produce as scholarly of a work as possible. And so uh, sometimes people think, oh, it's better if this phrase is here. But let me show you that God has preserved his word no matter where we put that phrase, whether we say sky blue or blue sky uh, is neither here nor there, um, right? So Revelation 13, 8 says, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Now it's talking about the beast, okay? Without getting all into that, it's, that's this is a bad thing that they're worshiping it, okay? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Okay, that's the ESV translation. Once again, I'll read it again. And all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. I think that's what it's referring to there, the beast. Okay. Um, everyone whose name has not been written 
before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Now, other translations will say that it's the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So it's all about where they're putting that phrase before the foundation of the world. But listen, it doesn't matter. It says the same truth, okay? We know that Jesus died on a cross in AD 30 or 33 or whatever the exact number is. He was slain on a cross, right? But it is so real and such a part of creation that it is as if he was slain before the foundation of the world. It was a predetermined thing, which it says other places in scripture in Acts. Um, I could show you that if you want me to email you that. Um, I'd look it up now, but it would just take more time. But it's, uh, this is not controversial. Nothing I'm saying here is controversial. Every Christian should agree with this that Jesus was ordained to die the way that he did for his people. And that that they're saying in revelation is something that is so real that it happened before the foundation of the world, or it's as if it happened before the foundation of the world. Now I like that. I like that translation. I think, I think it's perfectly fine. The ESV also says, um, or the ESV says everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So if the names were written before the foundation of the world, where were they written? They were written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the Lamb is still as if he was slain before the foundation of the world. I think the Bible often shows us that a book or writing, God writing something down is predetermining a history that will that is yet to take place. So if God's writing in a book that he calls the book of life of the lamb who was slain, but he wrote it down before the foundation of the world, then you see how the translations are basically saying the same thing. There's not a conflict there. And what we're pointing out here is that in that phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. In that phrase, or before that phrase, or however you want to, however you want to say it, in that beginning, or right before that beginning, or in eternity past before that beginning, however technically technical you want to be, is neither here nor there. But before that, God had already decided, I'm writing these names down. It's as if the Lamb has already been slain. I am going to save people. It's in my book. I'm writing it down before the foundation of the world. That should be a great comfort to us. A comfort that before God even decided to make all these things, he decided to redeem us. He decided to write our names down in a book. He decided to operate on the basis of Jesus dying for us before he even spoke the world into existence. It was always part of God's plan. I think if you say that it wasn't part of God's plan, you really denigrate the glory of Christ because from him and through him and to him are all things. So God did all the things that he did so that we could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, um, couple more things on that type of um, purpose or foreknowledge or we could even say election. 
hang with me because uh, just a few more verses here. First um, Peter one twenty. First Peter one twenty. Now uh, I want to point out if you've listened to Pigeon Post, you know this. I I like to read really long passages. And I do that um, because I want you to see that I'm not cherry picking Bible verses. Okay, uh, if you listen to someone uh, on TV or maybe your pastor does this, it's okay, right? I'm doing it right now. I'm going to read one Bible verse, but always be careful if somebody is just going to read one Bible verse to you, because what do we say at the beginning of this? That it's it's a fearful thing that people think that anybody can string together whatever verses they want and make it say what they want. If you think I'm doing that, please, please, please email me and tell me, and I will listen to you if you're right, if you if you want to prove that I am misrepresenting anything in Scripture at all, even the smallest detail. I want to know God. Um, I don't think I'm right about everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if I'm misrepresenting something about God, please tell me so that I can correct it, and I will um, if I'm wrong. Um, I am trying to operate within the context of all these verses, and that's why I'm reading big chunks and giving you even more to read, right? Um, so read Hebrews 1, read Colossians 1, read 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Okay, um, 1 Peter, uh, Peter 1.20 says, um, he, and that's talking about Christ, which it also compares him to a lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. So, once again, that's idea of Jesus being the Lamb who was slain before the foundation, or the Lamb who was going to be slain before the foundation. Um, in the mind of God, that is something that was always going to happen, and Peter affirms that. So you've got two New Testament authors, Peter and John, both affirming that fact. This is clearly apostolic teaching. Um, lastly, let's also go to the Apostle Paul. Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians. By the way, if you get Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you get those out of order, um, you can remember General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. Um, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says, Even as he chose us, he's talking about the Father, in him, talking about Christ. So even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So, that predestination, that choosing, is something that happened when? Before, or right inside of Genesis 1-1. So, we're wrapping up here. I'm trying to show you, not just to take Genesis 1 and say, okay, this was the first day, this is the second day, um... You know, here's the scientific explanation of how all that happened. That's great. There's people that do great work with that. Um, what I'm trying to show you is that 
what Isaiah and Moses and David and Jesus and the apostles, Matthew, um, yeah, um, all of them, right? But Mar the ones I quoted, Mark, Peter, uh, John, Paul, what all of those people are saying, what the entire Bible is saying about Genesis 1 is that it is loaded, it's preloaded for redemption. It, these things are going to be fulfilled in Jesus in a way that's even beyond what we see in Genesis 1, the magnificence of creation. I guarantee you that the Israelite who's laying there staring at the stars sees how magnificent that is, but also sees how magnificent it is that the one God ransomed them out of Egypt, who Egypt, I don't know for sure, but they probably worshiped the stars, right? A lot of old, you know, um, religions and countries back then thought that the stars were gods, right? But God, Yahweh, made the stars for his glory. They're part of creation. Um, man, I, I hope I've said something here <laughs> in this over an hour and a half that you will find helpful or useful. Um, I hope that I've at least shown you that you can look throughout the Bible see what it says, and try to put those things together in a way that opens up the Old Testament. And if you go back and read 2 Corinthians 3, that is what the gospel is for, is to take the veil by the Holy Spirit and through what Jesus has done, take the veil from our eyes to see the glory of God. I hope you see the glory of God today. I love you. I don't know who you are, but I love you. Thank you for listening. My job is not to try to be right about everything. And I'm trying to do my best to say things with grace, and with gentleness, and with love. But I, ha I cannot stop trying to convince you of the truth. Because I want you to know God. I want to know God. I want my kids to know God. Um, thanks. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Um, if you want to send, this isn't like a, I don't look at this as like, like this ministry thing, but you know, if you, if you want to talk about this or, um, I mean like an official like ministry, uh, if you want to like talk about the, any of this stuff, I'm not an expert, but like I told you before, like I've struggled with these things. Like, is the Trinity really what the Bible teaches? And I struggle with it and struggle with it. And I'm telling you that it's better to come out of that struggle um, there are so many people out there nowadays that are encouraging people to deconstruct their faith. And then when's the reconstruction happen? Never. It's like road work. You're never done with the freeway. And I, I don't think that that is the way that God wants us to approach our faith. I think that he wants us to, to dig into his word, to see the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we have to be convinced that Jesus died and rose again. He died for our sins to make us right with God. Something that we could never do to make us right with the one true God. So that we could be sons of God and daughters of God. And that he could be our father. And that this is even better than how Adam had it in the garden. That's the gospel. It's the only gospel I know trust in Christ, repent of your sins, turn away from them, and believe that God will make you a new person in Christ, that you will be a new creation, just as new, but better 
than when Adam was created. And uh, we'll keep we'll keep getting into that. I'll try to keep being as clear as possible about the gospel because I want you to know God. I don't care who you are. I want you to know God. Um, so um, in that sense, in the sense that I know you, I love you, even if you're a stranger. Um, I hope friends and family are listening. And um, thank you for being patient with me. Um, sometimes I can be long-winded, but look at what we're trying to accomplish here. We're trying to know God. Um, I'll just tell you that my method is just to read the, the passage. So like I'm already taking notes on Genesis 2. And every time I'm reminded of somewhere else in the Bible, I look it up and see if it's relevant and write it down and try to relate it to the gospel and to Christ and to what we should know about God. And um, that's my method. And if you don't know the Bible very well, you can still do this. You just need a reference Bible. Uh, the reference Bible will show you where those scriptures in Genesis 2 are alluded to in other places in the Bible or where they're quoted directly. And you can see that you can find those places for yourself. Um, so I'm just here to help. Anyway, um, once again, the email address, pigeonpost2019 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Um, dig your roots down into God in this crisis. And you will see that he has a purpose even in this. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening.